Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our theme this month has been a topic that should be of great concern to everyone. What happens to an infant born to an incarcerated mother and the impact of that birth, not just on the mother, but her baby as well? Um, I read an article in Atlanta Magazine, and that's what prompted me to reach out to our guest who we met last week, and she is with us again. Her name is Amy Ard, and she is the director of Motherhood Beyond Bars in Georgia. So we began to talk about this topic last week. I encourage my listeners to pick that up first because that kind of opens the topic and we're going to talk some more today. So Amy, welcome back. Thanks so much, Harriet. Happy to All be right. here. Good. So we, we kind of ended last week on um, a comment I made that very few prisons that I know about um, allow a mother to keep her baby after birth. Um, can you, there are nine prisons that I know about in the country. Can, can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon of removing a baby after? It? Sure. You often hear them referred to as prison nurseries. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea is that you screen pregnant women for this program and there's a certain number of qualifications they have to have. One is their sentence, what they were sentenced for, how much long, how long their sentence is. No one um, really, you know, no one's going to have a school-aged child in prison with their mother. So she needs to have a pretty short sentence after the delivery so that you try to limit the impacts of incarcerating a child. And um, that it gives the opportunity for the mom and the infant to bond, um, to be together, to receive some support, some guidance, some parenting skills. Um, rather than being separated. And the proponents of programs like this look at recidivism rates and say that the, the women who are able to take advantage of a program like this have very low recidivism rates um, and that they gain special skills inside when they, with, with their child that allow them to parent um, once they leave prison. Um, those are some of the pros. Obviously, for any, anybody that's had a baby, um, imagining being separated from, from your newborn a couple of hours. When I talk to people about our work, you can just see the, like their, their heart almost breaking to imagine what it would be like to some, for someone to take your child that you have just delivered from your body out of your arms and know that you will not see that child again in person for a long time. So for a lot of people, the idea of a prison nursery is a good middle ground for, um, and, and avoids that separation. But there are some downsides. Um, but there's so few. And there's um, so few programs. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. this I don't, I don't know what percent of women would even be eligible for this based on the state that they live in, the number of slots in the program. But this is not solving your problem. It is mm -hmm. a very, very few women are eligible for programs like these, either based on the state that they're incarcerated in or the number of slots in those programs in the states that have them. And I think, too, if you are in for a violent crime, you're not Correct. eligible. Right? Correct. So that, that, too. 
So, all right. So based on that, what happens to that newborn if they are not allowed to stay with their mom? And I'd also like to possibly talk about what happens to the newborn if they are allowed to remain with mm -hmm. them. If you could talk to both sides of that question. Well, I have never been a part of a program with a, a prison nursery. So mm -hmm. I, I have learned about those the way most people have, which is television programs. And right. I've actually never even spoken to a woman who was part of one. Um, when I mentioned that there were some downside, I mean, I, I think the availability of the program is certainly a downside, but it is a really huge power dynamic between prison officials and women when there are very, very few slots available for those um, that it, it, it can create a lot of problems and a lot of fear for women inside of prison who really want to be a part of this program, but could be written up for any infraction in the book and lose the right to be with their child. So there's a lot of power at play yeah. for when women um, are potentially given that opportunity and maybe they wear their hair down wrong the one day, one day and they, they can't do it. Um, they can't have their baby with them. I will, again, my, my expertise is what happens in Georgia and because every state has a different system, I can really speak to what happens to Georgia and Georgia. But it often surprises people that um, almost none of our children enter the foster care system if they're mm. born to a woman in prison. It is very rare. So women have the right to choose um, the person that will be the caregiver for their child um, once they've delivered the baby and they go back to prison. And in Georgia, they can really choose anyone. They can often and do often choose a grandparent. Sometimes it's a paternal grandparent. Sometimes it's a maternal grandparent. Sometimes it's a friend. But I would say all the women that we work with are really desperate to keep their child out of foster care because there is a federal, there's federal legislation that, um, that says if your child is in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, your rights can be automatically terminated, your parental rights. This law was written to keep kids out of foster care and put them in permanent homes and available for adoption. But there was no loophole for women or, or men, parents that were in prison and couldn't be with their children for that 15 months because they were physically separated by prison walls. So it applies to them too. They may be planning to come out in the, on that 16th month and be the most dedicated and present parent on the planet, but they know that this law exists. And so they will do anything to make sure that that clock doesn't start ticking on them. And they'll ask any family member or any friend or sometimes someone they don't even know very well to agree to be a temporary caregiver for the child. And they write a name and a phone number down on a piece of paper and that travels with them to the hospital. And when the mother has left the hospital, usually 48 hours after giving birth, the nursery staff opens up the folder and calls the phone number that she find, they find on that piece of paper and they tell them that there's a baby to pick up. And the hospital staff told me that sometimes in the past, they have made that call and the person had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't know that they were gonna be the caregiver for a oh newborn. And so those people arrive at the hospital. Um, and I will say all of this is in the past now because our program has fundamentally changed the way this, this process works, but they would arrive with nothing. Um, 
and you know they may be coming on a Sunday and have to be at work at 8 a.m. on Monday morning and have no idea what they're going to do with this newborn. Um, and so that's the problem. That's the the the, the system that we were um, faced with. Women that we worked with in prison had always told us our the caregivers really need some help, um, and we really we can't help them. There's no, we can't make we can't make money in prison. We're not paid for our work here, so we can't send money home. We the the grandparents may want very much to give you know this this child all the time and attention, but they have to work. And so what we were hearing from women was the caregivers were desperate to take care of the child. They were often very low resource, so they didn't have money to take care of the child. The mothers would call home and hear the baby crying in the background, and over and over and over again, they were hearing about diaper rash. And um, then there was a real problem with childcare. These families were handed a baby at the hospital. They walked out the front door of the hospital with a baby, and that was it. We just expected them to figure the rest of it out. And so what do we expect? You know, what kind of outcomes um, can you reasonably expect from that situation? And so where does your organization come in at, in, in a situation as like you just described? Well, in 2019, we were hearing a lot from the women that we worked with. Please help take care of our infants. Please help take care of our infants, our babies. Our caregivers are overwhelmed. One of the rules the prison set for in-person volunteers was that we could not have contact with family members. So we were not allowed to reach out to family members of women that we worked with inside prison. And the prison was concerned we'd bring in contraband from family members to women that we worked with. But like we were a a pathway for contraband. Um, In 2019, the Georgia Department of Corrections decided that uh, I think they decided they didn't like me very much. (laughs) Um, I haven't. I've got never gotten any formal contact from them that I was not allowed in a prison, but they did like really mature things like calling coworkers of mine and telling them to stop having contact with me. So the writing was on the wall, really, that we they weren't going to let me in, um, even though they never said that to me directly. And so in that moment, we had a decision to make. We were either just going to throw in the towel and say, well, they won't let us in anymore or we were going to listen to what the women had told us that they wanted and needed and see if we couldn't do that. And so we made the decision to change our programs from in-person programs in prison to working directly with incarcerated women, but not being there in person. So we have phone calls and emails and working with the family members and the infants. So really overnight, we turned into from an organization that provided childbirth education and support directly to pregnant women in prison to a social work agency that dealt with an entire family impacted by the incarceration of that mother. And it was a big shift. And we learned a lot along the way about what the impacts of incarceration are on these families. And I would say in the last two years, we've enrolled every single child born out of the Georgia prison system into our support program. The mothers in prison tell us who they've chosen to be the caregiver of their child and they give us the contact information for that person. So we reach out long before the baby is born to do a needs assessment with the caregiver, and we, we make them one promise from the beginning. We promise them they will never have to buy a pack of diapers. Mm-hmm. And that is a really powerful hook because those women were telling us they were calling home and hearing crying babies. And what that told us was 
if the reason is diaper rash, it's because the families don't have money to buy diapers. And that takes a huge immediate pressure off of the caregiving family, about $80 a month, mm. which for a lot of these families is a tremendous financial uh, gift, really. And that also tells them we're here for the long haul. I mean, as long as this baby's in diapers, we're going to be sending them to your doorstep and we are going to be talking to you throughout the process. We're never going to send a pack of diapers that's too big or too small. So we're going to need to be in contact with one another. And over time, we build relationships with the families. So we may start with diapers, but we end up um, knowing so much and building relationships with these families. Um, and that leads us back in to the mom coming back to her family and reunifying with her child. By the time that happens, we've built a relationship with the mother. We've built a relationship with the caregiver. Sometimes the children are old enough that now we have a relationship with them. And we have built a just circle of support around the whole family and a trusting circle of support. So they understand that they understand from the beginning what our, what our motives are. We're not a state agency. We're not a foster care social worker. We are here to support the family in the best way that we can for, for everyone and for the health and well-being of not just the mom, but the child as well. But beyond diapers, you know, I'm sure they need other means mm -hmm. of support or, uh, you know, find money maybe for food for the baby, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. How do you how do you work uh, One of the things capacity. we heard when we started making contact with the caregivers was they didn't know that they were eligible for some of the state programs. So when they went and picked up the baby, there wasn't a, there wasn't a caseworker that came with them that reached mm -hmm. out. There wasn't a social worker from the hospital or the prison, certainly, or or the foster care system. So we um, we became what's called a gateway community partner. Gateway is the system in Georgia where you apply for social services. And it really works best on a computer. You can do it on a phone, but you will want to run over the phone with your car if you try to, <laughs> you can't get too far in the process on a phone. And so our, our caregivers were saying, you know, we have a phone, we've tried to apply, it's confusing. So we we recognize in that moment there's a problem. There is a solution that exists. They can get WIC. They can they can get WIC so that they don't have to buy formula out of their own pocket. Oh, the first great. step we brought to was telling them that that was available. The second step we brought to the process was we became gateway community partners so we can apply on their behalf over the mm. phone using our computer. So we're not asking them to do it over their phone. That's a tremendous gift to the families. Yeah. And now we can track their progress for those applications. We know when their renewals are up, we can do that so we don't lose track of it. You know, that puts a lot of money back in these caregivers' pockets because formula is very expensive. And anyone who's lived the last few months realizes that sometimes it's not available. Sure we also have a stockpile of formula that we can send out in emergencies. We know if they need a car seat before they get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we had caregivers sometimes driving four hours to the hospital and being turned around to go back home because they oh. didn't have a car seat. They thought the baby came with a car seat. Um, we now know if it, the family needs a car seat and we meet them at the hospital. We put the baby in the car seat. Um, we know if they need a safe place to sleep. Every infant that leaves the hospital leaves the hospital with what we call one of our begin boxes. 
it's got about $300 worth of infant and baby supplies in it. So if you arrive at the hospital to pick up a baby born to a woman in prison, you're going to leave with everything you need to safely care for a newborn for the first couple of weeks. We have clothes, bathing supplies, bottles, extra formula, diapers. The box itself is a safe place for the baby to sleep with a mattress in it. So we are really making sure that every caregiver that comes to the hospital leaves with what they need to parent with confidence until we can figure out what the entire landscape is and, and then start to match them up with resources, either where they live locally or um, what we can offer. And, and how, how uh, wide is your reach? Like you just said, a family traveled four hours to pick up a baby. Um, how, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Um, Most of the caregivers live in Georgia. So yeah. all of these women right now are incarcerated in Georgia prisons. Right. Most of the people that they identify also live in Georgia. Every once in a while, they live in another state. So we mm-hmm. sent diapers to California when a, grand, when a grandparent, um, the, the mom was in prison in Georgia, but the baby went to California. We sent diapers there. Um, how, how did the baby get to California? They... Um, well, eventually it flew on an airplane, but they, the baby was picked up by a relative, a cousin. I see. That's who the mom wrote down on the piece of paper and the phone number. And the cousin went to pick up the baby. I remember doing the first interview with this this guy. He was probably in his late 20s, um, had never had a baby before. He was, you know, his, he and his girlfriend were trying to take care of this baby until the grandparent could get here from California oh, and pick I up see. the baby. Uh, so it was kind of a group effort there at first. Incredible. Um, it, are, are there some um, success stories that you can share with us about, you know, the uh, this whole concept of being there for the baby when the mother is still inside? Mm-hmm. I think one of the um, aspects of our program that is most important, certainly we make sure that there are like the baby's necessities are taken care of, but we are also equally obsessive, I would say, about making sure that the mother stays in contact with Mm -hmm. her caregiver and therefore her infant. So we know that for parents who are in prison, having contact with their family members is actually one of the biggest driving forces of staying out of prison when they get out. The closer their relationships are with their families, um, the better their chances are of staying out of prison. It does not mean much to an infant to get a phone call from their mother. The mom, the, the babies don't know right. who's on the other end. They may recognize the voice, and over time, those phone calls mean a lot. But it means a lot to the mother to call the person that has her baby and hear how her baby is doing, make decisions jointly about how the baby is being fed or the baby's bath time or the baby's bedtime or a choice of pediatrician to keep the mother included in those parenting decisions is really critical. The problem is that every form of communication to someone in prison in Georgia costs money. So every phone call costs money. Every email costs money. Um, It's 70 cents back and forth an email. So if I write you an email, Harriet, and you write me back, that's 70 cents. And you know this well because you write people in prison. I do. Um, That, again, is a huge burden on our caregivers who are often living well below the federal poverty limit. 
So we pay for that communication. We load money on the JPay accounts. We load money on Securus accounts so that caregivers and, and mothers can stay in touch. And our, the research component of our work will hopefully bear out over time that having that, that communication back and forth makes a difference when the mom comes home. We've been doing this for two years. We certainly have women that have come out of prison and reunified with their kids, but the average prison sentence is a little over two years. So this, this process of like the infant caregiver mom support program you know, I hope that in five years time, our research will bear out that that communication made a difference. And we are collecting that data currently. That's great. Now, you kind of opened the door for me. I was about to ask you about reunification. So when uh, often there probably are other children at home, or should I, I should ask you, is that the case where there may be uh, an a toddler at home in addition mm -hmm. to a new baby. Um, mm -hmm. So when the mother comes home, um, do you, are you still involved with the caregiver, the mother, the babies, the children? Yeah. So the majority of women coming out plan to go and live with, at least for some period of time, with the temporary caregiver and the children. There are very few women that come out of prison, go pick up the baby and move into right. a furnished apartment together. And that's that's not what we would even recommend because moving these kids around, that should be a process that they're attached to the caregiver. We need, we also want to make sure they're attached to the mother. So yes, our support um, does not end when the mom walks out of the prison gates. In fact, things get generally a little bit more intense at that point because the number of the number of things that a mother has to do when she comes out of prison to satisfy all the requirements of her post-incarceration life, it's a crippling list. It would be hard for anyone um, to keep up with it all. And on top of that, we've, and I think we put this kind of specific burden, not a burden on women, but an expectation on women that like their, the mothering of their child will be their central responsibility. They'll come back and be the perfect mother when they also have to find a job and an apartment sure. and they have to check in with their probation officer every once in a while. And they have to deal with the numerous traumas that they've just experienced in prison or pre-prison. It's often the reason they were in there to begin with. So we're not going to walk away from them at that critical moment. Um, we're going to support them in that, in that period too. Oh, that's great. That's really wonderful. Um, What's your vision for the future for women who are incarcerated and pregnant? Do you have some hopes that, you know, for the well, organization? I, I On most of my social media, I hashtag end prison birth. So I think that in a perfect world, we would create systems of support that disallowed the idea of giving birth behind prison walls. And I'm not naive. I know that there are some women who, for many reasons, mothering is not just going to rise to the top of their list of identities. That's not what that's not what they want to do or are equipped to do. But for the majority of women that we work with, I would say 90%, they have experienced severe trauma in their life. They are often not the first person in their immediate family to have spent time in prison. And this gets to the ending cycles of incarceration. So they've come from generations that have been saddled with 
trauma and poverty and substance dependencies and all sorts of things that lead them to prison in the first place. I have to believe that there is a better way to deal with those root issues than incarceration. And yet we continue to spend a lot of money locking women up, separating them, creating that initial trauma for this child who has just entered the world and literally within taking their first couple of breaths have have experienced separation from a parent, which we know is a traumatic experience. So I, 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 I just, I think there's a better way. And I, I think we lack the creativity and we certainly lack the will to divert our resources to actually healing uh, the trauma and, and the root trauma for a lot of these women and families. But you are doing wonderful, wonderful work. The, the support system you've created is, is priceless, really priceless. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you so much for taking time to tell us about your organization and shining a light on this very, very important and critical topic. Next time on Pursuing Justice, we're going to be speaking to Vanessa Garrett, who is a key part of your organization as she helps women deal with the challenges of re-entry after prison. Please join us next time when we will meet Vanessa. And thank you again, Amy, for being with us today. I really thank appreciate Thank you. It. All right. Thanks so much. See you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.